Welcome to Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada, the only software solution purpose-built to securely run complex and high-value infrastructure procurement. All your infrastructure procurement processes in one place, all in order. And join me, Ratna Amin, as I speak with the movers and shakers at the intersection of the public, private, and civic sectors about the latest breakthroughs and developments in the world of infrastructure. Today, I am joined by the Executive Director of the Mineta Transportation Institute at San Jose State University, Karen Felbrick. MTI works to increase mobility for all by improving the safety, efficiency, accessibility, and convenience of our nation's transportation system. Karen joins me now to talk about being an industry vanguard, as well as MTI's innovative programs and what they're doing to address the workforce shortage in the transportation industry. Karen, welcome to the show. It's so good to see you, my friend. I've missed you over these years. I know, I've missed you over these years. <laughs> yeah, Karen and I were able to collaborate and connect in the city of San Jose in the Bay Area quite a bit for a period of several years when I was the transportation director at Spur. Swapping stories about work-life balance and being working mothers and how to make it all come together in a meaningful and efficient way. I miss those times. Yes. And talk about efficient, Karen. Hopefully you will share some of your secrets about being such an incredibly efficient person. And maybe I'll tell the story of when I first met you over the phone, how efficient I found you. <laughs> first of all, I want to set the stage for our listeners. You are the executive director of the Mineta Transportation Institute, also known as MTI. MTI is a really interesting and large organization that has so many different functions, such as research, workforce development, technology transfer. Can you tell us a little bit about your role and then about MTI? I would love to do that. So I'm the executive director and at the Mineta Transportation Institute, we are actually part of San Jose State University and we are located in the College of Business as our academic home. We're a university transportation center and all of our work focuses on improving the mobility of people and goods. We accomplish that through surface transportation research, technology transfer, education, and workforce development. At present, we lead three competitively selected multi-university consortia. The first is funded by the U.S. Department of Transportation, and that includes partners at Howard University in Washington, D.C., Navajo Tech University in rural New Mexico, and the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. At San Jose State, we are minorities serving in two categories. We're Hispanic serving as well as Asian American and Pacific Islander. So you'll see that those partners were put together with an eye toward diversity. Diversity in student population served, diversity in expertise of the faculty, and most certainly diversity in geographic location. We've got the bookends of congestion in Washington, D.C. and the Silicon Valley. And then we've got our rural partners in New Mexico and at the time this consortium was formed, Charlotte was one of the fastest mid-sized growing cities in the nation. So we put this together with a thought that this creates a natural testbed for any of our research endeavors. The second consortium is funded through California Senate Bill 1. The formal name is the Road Repair and Accountability Act of 2017. Very brilliantly, Senator Bell and Assemblymember Frazier put a line item into that legislation, which has no sunset clause, that funds university research on transportation topics and workforce development. So we won the competition to lead all 23 CSU campuses in the system in that portfolio. And incidentally, Ratna, 
The CSU system is the largest four-year public university system in the nation. So we've got you know, partners spanning the state. And then most recently, we won um, a major grant from the Federal Railroad Administration to lead the Climate Change and Extreme Events Training and Research Program. That one's really important because when you talk about climate change, obviously we understand fires, we understand floods, we understand how that can impact our infrastructure and transportation. But when you dig a little deeper, and I'm certainly not an engineer, I'm a psychologist by training, but spent my whole career in this field, you learn about how heat impacts rail. So for example, last summer, when we had the major heat wave in the Bay Area, BART actually had to slow some of their trains. BART, incidentally, pre-pandemic, was the fifth heaviest passenger rail system in the nation. Um, it's only recovered its ridership to about 30%, so it's struggling, but it's making great strides. But it had to slow the trains because in extreme heat, rail spaghetti happens where there's a slight shifting that can cause derailments and other accidents. In fact, in the last 50 years, there have been numerous derailments caused from heat. So that's a little bit about what we do. I'm happy to dig in deeper to any of those topics that are of interest. That's amazing, Karen. And I know that you have this incredibly broad view, and then also have gone really deep in your career working in transit. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And then we can look at all of Mineta. But what is your work specifically? Sure. I made a point of mentioning just a couple of minutes ago that I'm a psychologist by training. And I say that and I emphasize that because one of the greatest crises we face in transportation is the lack of a qualified workforce. We have a shortage and we are competing with every other sector to create that transportation pipeline of the future. And so I like to tell people, whether you're a graphic designer, a psychologist, a journalist, a planner, or an engineer, or beyond, there's room for you in this particular field with exciting opportunities and family supporting jobs with good benefits. So let me start there. So taking a couple steps back, I did a double master's PhD in different areas of psychology. And as I started my doctoral program, the very first class, the very first day, there were six of us that were accepted and we were all sitting around feeling like imposters. Why did they pick us? I'm not good enough. Can I do it? All of those nasty self-doubt and self-talk that sometimes happens. And we had a professor walk in that said, who would like to earn extra money as a research assistant and who would like to travel? And he did not say anything beyond that, but being the adventurous person I was back then, I raised my hand. And two weeks later, I found myself in steel-toed boots in a yard office in Richmond, Virginia, collecting data on locomotive engineers and conductors. And my specialty was looking at fatigue patterns and fatigue countermeasures in a 24-7 operational environment. And very importantly, looking at response to person under the train incidents, whether that was the result of a grade crossing accident or a trespasser incident, and what's the impact on the operator. And I literally fell in love. It sounds like I'm making it up, but when I returned to Denver, I was actually seeing patients at Denver Health Medical Center, people who are mentally ill and chemically addicted, which is an extraordinarily tough population. And as I was doing therapy, I had an epiphany, truly. I heard the sound of a freight whistle and I knew in that moment that I belonged in transportation. And I have been in transportation every day of my career, changed the focus of my doctoral studies, and I could not love my job or be more passionate than I am. And so that's my background was, was really trauma, 
and sleep. Those were my areas of specialty. But when I was recruited out of the University of Denver, where I was leading the National Center for Intermodal Transportation, I became first the research director, then was elevated to deputy executive director, and then took the top position upon my predecessor's retirement. And so now I'm an administrator. So for context, currently we have about 125 research projects that are in process, ranging from workforce development to autonomous vehicles, to transit assault, operator assault, cybersecurity, countermeasures for terrorist attacks against surface transportation targets. The portfolio is broad. We also have a Master's of Science in Transportation Management program. What's really cool about this program is we designed the curriculum with Caltrans because we understood that people who are working professionals still want to take that next step in their scholastic career, but often don't either have the time during the day or the ability to go to classes. So it has always been a fully online experience, but students connect with the instructor in real time. It's not self-guided, so you get that interface. And in fact, about 10 years ago, two of our students married after meeting in that program, so it was really cool. But what I wanna say about that is because we're part of the College of Business, that program has AACSB accreditation, which only 5% of business schools achieve globally on an annual basis. And our entire master's degree, regardless of where you live, is $12,750 and can be completed in two years. So when I talk about equity and breaking down barriers and building ladders of economic opportunity, we're living it every single day. It's just incredible to hear about the education that's available to everybody to join the industry and to hear you talk about what a big and awesome industry transportation is. I think that's lost sometimes in the media that are focused on very specific stories. I've done a lot of work in transit, which has its own hot topics. And those hot topics sometimes don't include just that this is a really great industry with opportunities for all kinds of folks. And here's where you study to get into it. And I think what's important there is that there's opportunities from the front line to the C-suite. Not everybody is destined to get a master's degree or even a four-year degree. So really helping to tell that story about the opportunities that exist. And quite frankly, you said it perfectly. I mean, transportation is one of our nation's 16 critical infrastructures that, if harmed by natural or man-made disaster, would have devastating impact on our safety, security, and economic viability. And it touches all of our lives. Even if you live off the grid, you're still using an active form of transportation to get around, whether you're walking or rolling or using something else. So it really does impact all of us. Karen, you are doing education for many, many age levels. Can you talk about what that looks like at the middle school? Or, you know, I have an elementary school kid, so do you. What do you think are the best ways or types of knowledge we could be giving them about infrastructure? And I will just tell you a little story that drives, that something that made me a little bit crazy is over and over, I would see transportation was a topic for my kids' schools. It was usually just kids drawing pictures of cars and trucks. And it's not just that I think there's too many cars or trucks sometimes on the road that are safety hazard. It's so narrow of a view of this whole industry and the types of roles you can play in it. So what do you think is interesting to share with younger students? Well, I absolutely adore this question because this falls squarely in our workforce development efforts. 
Backing up a step, you know, as the mother of an elementary school student, that when you ask children or even adults to name careers in transportation, bus driver, maybe train operator, airline pilot, ship captain, but kind of at a loss beyond that. So part of our job is to make sure that we're telling the story in a meaningful way and that we're socially modeling success within this industry because you can't be it if you can't see it. And feeling a sense of belongingness and inclusivity is so important to success at every level. So when we talk about that pipeline and the K through 12 sector more specifically, in the elementary schools, you're doing different things. Like we, pre-pandemic, when my daughter was in second grade, in partnership with Union Pacific Railroad, which is a freight carrier for those who may not be familiar, we issued the Clifford the Big Red Dog grade crossing safety book in both English and Spanish because you cannot beat the train. If you think you're going to beat the train, you're, you're increasing your likelihood of an early demise and it's devastating, but people don't always understand that. So starting to read that book and talk about safety, and then we'd partner with the Valley Transportation Authority, which is our local transit agency and light rail and bus system, to get free passes. And we could take the kids on that light rail system and they could practice their newfound safety understanding and then take them on a field trip. It was incredible. It got them excited. And part of what we would do when we went into that classroom was project-based learning activities. So for example, we took uncooked spaghetti and tape and we gave it to groups of students and we said, now build a bridge that can hold the maximum amount of weight possible. So if it's me and you, we might start thinking, oh, how? okay, hmm, what am I gonna do here? These kids just get right to work. They're so creative and our winning team built a bridge that held an eight pound weight. An eight pound weight. That's amazing. Partnership is so important and collaboration that we've worked with the American Public Transportation Association, better known as APTA, and the California High Speed Rail Authority to develop curriculum that can be used in the elementary school systems related to sustainability and high-speed rail. And we make sure that that curriculum is age-appropriate by having it pilot-tested in the elementary schools. We make sure that it's methodologically sound by having subject matter experts review that curriculum. And then we roll it out for implementation. And more importantly, we upload it to our website so anybody around the globe can download it free of charge. We also have a poster contest that does go to that creative piece, but our theme most recently was walk and roll to school and think about getting out of the single occupancy vehicles. And that's just expanding their minds about what opportunities there are in transportation. And then super, super importantly, we have the Garrett Morgan Sustainable Transportation Competition for middle school students. This is named in honor of Garrett Morgan, who was the son of enslaved parents who went on to become a trailblazing inventor, African-American. He invented the modern three-way traffic signal, the gas mask, the sewing machine, and we honor him every year with this program. And we recruit teams from across the nation. We have a teacher's guide that's aligned with current curriculum standards. So because teachers are pressed for time, it's hard to add another activity. We actually had it aligned with California's Common Core curriculum so the teachers could take it off the shelf and drop it into their lesson plans and know that they're achieving the various objectives that they have to meet. And we put mentors in the classroom. So if a kid is interested in autonomous vehicles, we put an expert in that area. If it's high-speed rail, we work with our partners from there. 
put somebody in in that area. If it's safety, we work very closely with the National Transportation Safety Board and we have guest speakers from there. So really aligning experts with interest. And then the kids create a project that is then presented to a panel of judges and the winning team not only wins $1,000 for the classroom and gets a plaque and all the certificates, but they're flown to San Jose to participate in our June annual banquet and convocation celebration. And they're so cute. And I'm very pleased to say that um, it's mostly children of color and a high level from Title I schools where the preponderance of students qualify for free or reduced lunch. Can I go on and tell you one more program? Tell me one more program, but tell us about your winner this year. Can you share? Or is it a secret? No, I can't share yet because we're we haven't we haven't officially announced it. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, I'll stay. We'll stay tuned. Or we'll look it up. Stay tuned. And then in high school, oh my gosh, we have the world's coolest program. I get goosebumps talking about it. It's called the Summer Transportation Institute, or STI for short. We competitively select thirty-five high school students. Let me be very clear, we are breaking down barriers and disincentives to participation. So when I say competitive, they have to have a GPA of 2.0. They have to have an expressed interest in STEAM, STEM with A added for arts, and a letter of recommendation. So we're not looking for those straight A students. We're just looking for a little bit of commitment and skin in the game if they get accepted. Because there's no cost to participate in this program. It's a three-week on-campus non-residential program where the students come to San Jose State every day. They take a college-level course in environmental science in a condensed three-week format. If they pass an exam, they earn three units of fully transferable college credit. This is important because a number of our students would be first-generation college students and don't have role models in their nuclear or extended family that show them that sort of career trajectory. And so if you know anything about high school students, though, you can't just lecture at them. So we combine that with guest speakers. Last year, we had one on drones and the students got to fly drones. We had one with Neuro, which has autonomous delivery robots. We had one on traffic signal prioritization with another industry partner. And then we take them on field trips. In fact, we took all of the students to the Central Valley to tour the high-speed rail construction. Amazing. To see that project is real. We also went to the Oakland port so they could learn about careers in the maritime industry. We take them to the airport so they can learn about aviation. And we take them all these places. And I could talk about this for an hour, so I'm going to stop there. But it's super cool. I just love your enthusiasm, Karen. I'm wondering, like, Obviously, a lot of thought has gone into these programs and making them responsive to the audience, maybe even co-creating them. Could you give us a glimpse into your creative process at this organization? Because I know a lot of transportation organizations that sometimes struggle to come up with new creative ideas or don't really have a process for it or know whose job it is to do something that's a little bit new, out of the box, responsive to a younger generation. How do you as an organization develop these kinds of fresh and really engaging programs? That's a great question, which requires just a tad bit of background. So for context, we bring in the Mineta Transportation Institute, which is an organized research and training unit in the College of Business. We bring in about 12.5% of the gross funding received in grants and contracts to the entire university on an annual basis, more than the College of Engineering as a whole, for example. But the way I operate our staff is we have three full-time staff members 
And then we program the other funding on a competitive basis because unlike some universities that give grant funds to faculty to pursue whatever they're interested in, we go out and we solicit research needs from key stakeholders and we put that into a competitive RFP. That allows us to be nimble and to pivot based on what's needed. So why am I telling you that? So I've got myself as the executive director. I've got a deputy executive director. She's the most brilliant person I've ever worked with. She's smarter and more efficient than I am. And that's another life lesson. Hire to your weakness. Don't hire someone like you. Hire someone that's going to give you that perfect fit. And then we have a director of operations who's got a background in communications. So really oversees our social media presence, which is substantial. But then we go out and we hire consultants on a very limited basis, monetarily wise, to help us align what we are thinking with core curriculum standards. So for example, for a $600 honorarium, we hired a middle school teacher to review our curriculum, see what fit, see what could be more creative, and then make sure that the objectives were listed so teachers could easily see what it aligned with. We've had a former middle school teacher on staff, and they have a wonderful insight into what kids find exciting. We're also constantly reading the literature, like the Transportation Research Board has the TRID database, which issues federal and state-funded and global studies related to all facets of transportation. So really making sure we look at workforce development best practices and always making sure that there's project-based learning. The kids want to touch, feel, manipulate, and be immersed in whatever we are discussing. For example, flying the drones, that was a huge hit. So we make sure we stay abreast of leading practices that we partner, depending on what the topic is with the key industry leaders and making sure that we have those teachers also reviewing it. Now that's to our workforce development programs more specifically. But when it comes to research, I mentioned we get the high priority needs. We were recently codified into law twice in California, one through Senate Bill 1131 to look at assault on transit and also to look at safety on e-bikes. So making sure we're responsive to the state legislature and of course to our members of Congress at the federal level. So that all comes with a very broad outreach. I think you, you know, Ratna, that you can't just do research. You've got to make sure that you promote it, you disseminate it, and you amplify it. I think it's really valuable to hear you talk about all the ways you're getting your work out and bringing it to people where they are, whether they're in the schools or teacher. And I think that when we want to reach new populations, people should listen to your ideas or your experience of what all you're doing and how you're doing procurement differently to make sure that you get the help that you need in that moment, not just getting the same kind of providers. And I think that's a really important point on this program that we're trying to make is about making new partnerships. And it's not your typical firms or industry partners. It could be in the civic sector, they could be school partners, et cetera. That's absolutely true. And one of the things that's I think unique about how we lead the Institute is my job, for example, is very externally facing. So I deliver a number of keynotes, do podcasts such as this, media interviews, serve on boards and committees. And that's where a lot of work is done. And that's where we stand out as an academic institution. If you go to APTA conferences or ARCPA conferences or whatever <laughs> alphabet soup you want to talk about, 
I'm typically the only academic in the room. And so one of the boards I serve on is the International Transportation Learning Center, which last year won a $5 million contract from FTA to establish the first ever transit workforce program. They really focus on the frontline workers and apprenticeship. And then you've got APTA, the American Public Transportation Association, which really focuses on the CEOs and the board. And so when you look at the membership in both boards, I get a view from the, from the front line to the C-suite of what's needed to make sure that we're funding research that's critical to both industries and that we're building the partnerships that break down barriers. That's about the third or fourth time I've mentioned breaking down barriers, removing disincentives. Everything has to have a focus on that outcome. Absolutely. I think that's very interesting that you have strategy around joining boards. Could you speak more about that as a leader and especially as a woman? We weren't always given access to boards or trained on how to look for board opportunities. Give us a little bit of insight to why leaders in this industry should pay attention to board opportunities. I think it is so important. So let me just start with a quick personal story. One of the first boards I was elected to was Women in Transportation Seminar, WTS. And I truly credit that experience with finding my own voice. It was a safe space to be able to talk about what my vision for success was and how I could contribute. And being surrounded by like-minded individuals that were also women was very helpful in not feeling overwhelmed, if you will. And that just blossomed into more board service at the direction of my board of trustees, because I do report to a 27-person board. And they said, you need to get out there. You need to be building these relationships. You need to be amplifying all of the work product. And so I serve on APTA. I serve on the American Road and Transportation Builders Association. They're a little bit behind on the gender diversity compared to APTA, for example, but they're coming. They're coming along. I serve on NASA's Science and Technology Council. I'm appointed by Secretary Buttigieg to the Transit Advisory Committee for Safety, WTS International, a couple of TRB committees. I mean, there's a lot, but I think that the underlining critical thing to think about is you must contribute in a meaningful and substantial way. You can't just be warming a seat. If you really want to move the needle, you need to show up, you need to follow through, you need to close the loop, and you need to be accountable. And I attribute those characteristics with the success I've had of being placed on other boards. And, you know, you, you brought up women in the industry. The Mineta Transportation Institute funded a study in 2019 looking at what is that proportion. At that time, it was about 15% across all modes. If you dig deeper, it's about 1% in freight. It's about 30% in transit, but most recently, the Bureau of Labor and Statistics issued some, some new data that said in rail, we're 7% women. And so when we talk about recruiting, this is an untapped market, but we not only need to recruit, we need to retain and advance and connect these women. And so just some of the words we use matter. Like when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think a number of people are maybe a bit confused by those terms, but don't feel safe asking for clarification. So when I'm speaking, I like to break it down in very simple terms. When you're talking about diversity, you have a plurality of voices around that table, different races, gender, 
ethnic groups, religions, socioeconomic status. That's diversity. A friend told me that she learned to look under the table at everybody's shoes and I guess their socks and pants. And then you see the diversity. Well, that's a new Here's one. thought. <laughs> I like to wear four inch heels. So I like well, there that. There you go. You're the four inch <laughs> heel woman. We've got one at the table. There we go. I've never heard that. So I really like that. But that inclusivity piece means that every one of those people, regardless of their shoes, regardless of their appearance, has an equal opportunity to weigh in on the outcome of decisions and the way forward. And when we talk about equity, we're not talking about everybody getting the same thing, which is equality. Equity is getting the resources you need to level the playing field. And then when we talk now about, about gender and gender identification, we learn that you really want to stay away from female because female refers to biological sex, where woman refers to how you identify. And so just these subtle changes, reviewing job descriptions so that you have gender neutral terms, or that you're removing the requirement that you can lift 50 pounds or some other artificial deterrent, making sure that interview panels have diverse people. Don't send in five white men Make sure that you're representing the workforce that you want to achieve because people need to feel a sense of belonging. When you belong, you're more likely to stay. And that is so important to think about all of those things as we build the workforce of the future. That's such helpful advice when you belong, which is a word folks are using a lot today but need to explore maybe a little bit more as you're saying, you might stay. I wanna connect that back to your own work around mental health being a psychologist and the stresses of work in particular jobs in this industry at particular times. What is the connection between people staying in their jobs and their mental health or what they're experiencing? Something super traumatic happened in the transit industry last year. And I can see that you probably know what I'm referring to. And that is one of our beloved colleagues, the CEO of the MARTA system in Atlanta, Mr. Jeff Parker, he committed suicide. And he did so by taking his life with one of his own trains. And so the industry was rocked because this was a stand-up human being, a, a wonderful colleague, uh, a titan in his community, a person of presence in his church. There was no scandal. There was nothing there there. It was just somebody who is so deeply in pain, they saw no way out. And not one of us in the industry, not one of us saw that coming. And in fact, ACTA had his wife, who is a nurse focused on adolescent suicide, come and speak to the board. And she was giving us all permission to forgive ourselves because she didn't see it either. And it just reminded me that, particularly in transportation, we often have somewhat of a, a machismo sort of attitude, if you will. And we're seen as less than or less competent, less capable, too emotional, fill in whatever adjective you want if we talk about what's happening in our real world. But what I know is you can never underestimate the power of a kind word or of a listening ear. And, and I know you can relate to what I'm about to say. Too often when we're talking to others, they're either looking at their phone, which there's some fascinating research that says that if a phone is even present on a table, even if you're not looking at it, that it inhibits the degree to which you become more in line with each other, how you communicate better. You don't receive the same levels of intimacy because it's suggesting that at any point in time, something on that phone is more important than what's happening in the here and now. And we also know, and I'm sure 
on some level, we've all been guilty of the following, that we're looking at you, we're ostensibly listening to you, but really we're just waiting for your lips to stop so that we can tell you what we've been rehearsing in our head. And when we don't have that human connection, when people don't feel heard, valued, respected, we lose a lot. And God forbid, sometimes we lose people to suicide because they don't have the support system they need. Mm. Thank you, Karen, for sharing that and being willing to bring up some of the harder stories in this industry and in any industry. I think there's an interesting connection back to something that's happening with transit, which you and I both have been working on, of people feeling a little disconnected from one another in their communities. And you do see fewer people using transit and getting around and connecting with others. And there is a role that the phone is playing in how we're using infrastructure and how we're using our services. And as parents, we're very cognizant of this, but I'm not sure that we're really elevating it to the significance that it deserves in our conversations about what we need out of our infrastructure and our communities. I think you're right. And I'm very emotive. So when I say I'm covered in goosebumps, I literally am covered in goosebumps because you're reminding me of the fact that we are the great connector. And when you talk about emotional and physical well-being, you can never underestimate the value of social support in that process. There was some fascinating research done that showed that people who lack social connectivity have health that's equivalent to people that smoke up to 15 cigarettes a day. I mean, it's so vital to have relationships. And we did some great research previously that looked at veterans returning from conflict zones, found that those who located in close proximity to transit reintegrated into society better. They could reach those social support opportunities. They could get to work. They could get to the doctor's appointment. And, and transportation, whether it's micromobility, public transportation, or your own automobile, it's, it's part of quality of life and a part of making sure you have a full, rich, and complete life. Oh, that's such a great point. Thank you, Karen. And I think that's particularly a great point for someone oriented around family to bring up because we see how great life is when you're in, re in relationship. Could you connect the dots for our listeners a little bit or tell us what you think about the connection between the prevalence of homeless individuals and folks with mental health problems or don't have their family around who are in our public spaces and on transit? And it's really difficult to address that. And at the same time, we want more folks to ride on those trains and take advantage of the opportunity transit provides. I'm really curious how you look at that moment we're in around safety and public spaces and transportation and our need to connect. Yes. I want to be very clear that I have not researched this myself, but I have scanned the literature. And I think that we have to be very careful when we talk about the unhoused population and mental illness, because those two are not causal nor are they often correlated. And I think that that is incredibly important to draw that distinction. And I also think as someone who lives in an urban environment, in a high rise, in a dense city in San Jose, I saw a major change happen with the pandemic. I know we have pandemic fatigue and we're probably tired of talking about it, but when everything closed down and we had the demonstrations related to Black Lives Matter and, and things were boarded up, what we saw were all of the unhoused as one population, the mentally ill as a second population, and we didn't see people like ourselves kind of diffusing those populations. So it felt more scary. We felt more vulnerable. And of course, ridership on transit was decimated 
And as we're trying to build that back up, we are seeing increased fears of assault and just general emphasis on safety and some people feeling not safe. I agree. So pay attention to words and also help take care of folks when we feel moved to do so. Karen, I want to hear about the couple of things you're most excited about at Mineta in the coming year. Oof, I'm kind of excitable. So that's a little bit difficult to drill down on. Like one thing you're looking forward to. Okay. One thing I'm really looking forward to is our annual banquet and convocation celebration. I'm very social and we have this event, as you might recall, every June, and it's where we bring our graduates for our Master's of Science and Transportation Management degree all into one room. So for example, we have people from BART, we have people from Caltrans, we have somebody from WSP, and we celebrate their success. But we also celebrate leaders within our industry for the remarkable contributions that they've made. And we celebrate those Garrett Morgan Middle School winners who get to come up and address that crowd. I'm very pleased to say it's, it's almost known as the preeminent transportation event in California because we get about 300 people, family, friends, elected officials, CEOs, runs the gamut. This year, our commencement address will be delivered by CalSTAS Secretary Tokso Mishakin or the Secretary of Transportation for California, if you don't reside in this state. And he is just an incredible human being that's going to speak from the heart and really draw connections for the graduates. But I'm really excited about that because last year, we graduated a BART ticket agent along with the CEO of Stanislaw Transit Agency. And to me, that speaks volumes about the impact that we have because we all like to talk about breaking down barriers and equity, but are we living it? Are we living it through our work on a daily basis in our professional world? Are we doing it in our personal lives? And I think this culminating event where it's very difficult, by the way, the worst part of my job is getting sponsors, but all those sponsorships go right to scholarships. And so we get about 30 a year. And it's so gratifying to stand up and see everybody rejoicing in the progress of others and celebrating the accomplishments of those who will go on to lead our industry. That's amazing. What a great sponsorship opportunity for those listening to invest in your educational institutions that are training the workforce of the future. I'm going to wrap up with two questions we've been asking all our guests. So Karen, first of all, you're involved in lots of major projects of national scope, all of these boards. For the average bear, that would be a stressful ordeal. But how do you find order in the chaos? I have a secret weapon called a stay-at-home dad as a husband. So let me start there because you can never underestimate his power in making our lives be smooth. I'm deeply offended when people say, if you have a stay-at-home mom or dad, that they don't work. They work just as damn hard as we do. They just don't work outside the home. And while I struggle with leaving my child in a way that maybe, maybe a man would not, he really makes sure that everything is taken care of on the home front, which allows me to blossom in the professional setting. I love almost a frenetic pace of activity. I love action items. I love closing the loops. And so I find order out of my chaos in doing simple things on a daily basis. Like I have so many action item folders and checklists. It would make your head spin, but it's what makes me successful. And I think that the power of a checklist and time management is the most critical things to success. In fact, if I were going to give one recommendation of a book, 
There's a book I love from 2009 called The Checklist Manifesto. It's an awesome book. It's a quick read. It's an awesome book and a quick read. I actually just read it, Karen, finally, even though I've heard many interviews with him, though, with Atul Gawande. It talks about a checklist related to safety and to changing behavior. And I think that we have so much stimuli happening on a daily basis that if people think they're going to remember, they're not. And so to show up and be a good colleague, to be a good professional, to be a good caregiver, having a list is essential. And that is probably my very one major contributor to creating order out of chaos. It sounds silly, but it's true. And it's something everybody can do. We can all create a little bit more order with checklists. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, I I have a lot of those laying around. Okay, one last question before I let you go. Is there any major infrastructure project anywhere in the world that's on your bucket list to go and see one day? The California high-speed rail system when it's fully operational. It is an incredible project. And by the way, circling back to the statistics we talked about earlier about women in the workforce, even though only 7% of the rail workers are made up of women, over 50% of the workers at the high-speed rail project are women, including a majority of the leadership team. They've employed over 10,000 people. They took the Central Valley, um, which I, I actually went to college in Fresno. I love the Central Valley, which at the time had double digits unemployment, like about 25%. And now it's in the single digits. People like to balk at the length and the cost of projects, but 10, 15 years in transportation, quite frankly, is the blink of an eye. And people balked at the Bay Bridge and at the Golden Gate Bridge, and look at those critical pieces of infrastructure and how valued they are. And so I wanna see that happen in my lifetime. I've had the pleasure of writing other systems. One of the things I love to point out about the Shinkansen in Japan is that in 2011, when Japan had the trifecta of disasters, the nuclear meltdown, the tsunami, and the earthquake, not a single life was lost on the high-speed rail system. Why? The P-wave sensors slowed the train and a highly trained workforce successfully evacuated all riders. And I just think that is so incredible. But one last thing, Ratna, I've had the pleasure of going to 42 countries, six continents and 48 states. So I've seen a lot of infrastructure and that's why I want to see it in my own state, my own backyard. Yeah, (laughs) you should get to imagine that. Thank you for sharing that vision. And I worked on high-speed rail a couple of different times myself, and I'm also looking forward to riding it in my own state. And I want to ride the system in Hawaii, too, in case you want to invite me out. (laughs) Yes, it opens soon. We'll work on that. All right. Awesome, Karen. Thank you so much for sharing your time, your very valuable time with us today, and all of your insights. Thank you for having me. Have a wonderful and safe day. Thank you, Karen. I want to give a big thank you to Karen Felbrick for being with us today. Inclusive workforce development in transportation is so critical right now, so it was great to hear about your initiatives to support that. If you're enjoying the show, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review so more people can find us. And until next time, I'm Ratna Amin, and this has been Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada. Ansarada.